We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined this evening by regular commentators Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. Good evening. And we'll begin with the latest coronavirus news, as we have been for the last several months. And the Central Epidemic Command Centre on Monday of this week announcing that it will be easing some more coronavirus restrictions at some venues. Now, restrictions are being eased at movie theatres, sports venues and train stations. And while health officials say they will allow the reopening of more entertainment venues next Tuesday, but only if the coronavirus situation remains stable. And we'll get to those other venues in a bit. But the latest round of eased restrictions means that people will be allowed to eat inside train stations and the high-speed rail stations, but still banned from eating on the actual trains themselves. Now, for movie theatres, performances, exhibitions and sporting events, the number of participants will no longer be capped at 80 and 300 people for indoor and outdoor activities, and the checkerboard seating system will no longer be required. Now, tickets will also be able to be sold live on the day of events, but only if social distancing can be maintained when people are actually lining up to purchase them. Now, event participants will still be required to wear face masks and leave their names and phone numbers before entering any venues for contract tracing purposes. And internet cafes, MTVs, KTVs and even Mahjong clubs will be able to reopen possibly next week. But at least 60% of employees at such venues will need to have first received their first coronavirus vaccine dose 14 days prior to the venues actually reopening. And also disease prevention measures will need to be in place. Those measures include surveillance cameras installed to allow health authorities to retrieve the footage if necessary, a 30-minute disinfection period being required between sets of customers using the same boots, or KTV and MTV boots, and also, of course, customers must still wear face masks and no eating is allowed. But, however, nightclubs and most bars will not be allowed to reopen. Meanwhile, the first of two batches of the Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccine with customised labels arrived in Taiwan this week. 540,000 doses arrived at Taoyuan International Airport on a China Airlines flight from Frankfurt on Thursday, while 600,000 doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine arrived in Taiwan earlier this morning, again on a China Airlines cargo flight. And 200,000 more doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is slated to arrive in Taiwan next Monday. Now the shipments which total 1.4 million doses are coming from the German vaccine maker and they've been manufactured with a customised label specifically for Taiwan. Of course two initial batches of the Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccine were shipped to Taiwan in early September. However their, their labelling was well that irked some people because they were labelled with simplified characters. So the new batches are labelled fully in English including the instructions and the name of the Chinese pharmaceutical company Forsen Pharma, which of course is partnered with BioNTech, and the only Chinese characters on the labels read prescription drug in traditional Chinese. Now all of the doses of course are part of the 15 million purchased directly from the German manufacturer in July by Honhai's Yonglin Foundation, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing and the Tsuchi Foundation. And staying with vaccine news, the new Taipei City Department of Health this week revoked the Yenju Gong Hospital's right to administer coronavirus vaccines for one week 
week. Ah, that's because staff there mistakenly gave undiluted Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine doses to 25 people. The doses were administered at a vaccination site at a temple in the Inger district on Monday, and city health officials described the administering of the undiluted vaccines as being the result of medical negligence. Authorities have now ordered the hospital to make improvements to its vaccination system, and the hospital, of course, offered a public apology about the incident, with its vice superintendent saying that medical personnel at the vaccination site mistakenly believed that the vaccine had already been diluted because the caps had fallen off the vials. Now, the new Taipei City Health Department earlier this week said that 25 people are currently in good health, and the Central Epidemic Command Centre says a panel of experts is now deciding how to handle the coronavirus vaccine overdose case, with Centre Advisor Jiang Shengchun saying the Advisory Committee on Immunisation Practices is examining how similar incidents have been handled in other countries, and then after it's reviewed those incidents, it will decide whether the 25 people should be given a second dose of the vaccine. Now, here are the figures. A Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine vial contains 0.45 millilitres of vaccine concentrate, which requires dilution with 1.8 millilitres of a preservative-free 0.9% sodium chloride injection. Now, one dose equals 0.3 millilitres of the diluted content. And because the vaccine doses given out by the hospital were not diluted, the 25 individuals received six times the normal dosage. So, Brian, where should we begin here? Let's begin here with, are you planning to go to any venue recently because you don't have to sit at a checkerboard seating anymore? Uh, not particularly. I think I'll sit it out currently because I think uh, many places it's still requiring people to sit down and you can't actually stand up and watch a show, for example, during the, uh, you know, the current period of relaxing restrictions. Uh, movie theaters are open and uh, that's been the case for a while, but sometimes, you know, if there's nothing that really attracts me, I think I'll stay home for now. And so I think this is actually the case with quite a lot of people in the sense that there'll still be this reluctancy to go out uh, despite the relaxing of measures. And I think that is something the government is aware of, that if you declare things open now, it will actually take some time for people to come back. Uh, so as things get better, then I think there will be this kind of delayed effect. And it's still, uh, in the meantime, it's still a question for a lot of these industries how they will recover. I mean, particularly uh, industries in which you do need large moments of people, such as KTVs, for example, uh, in which this is particularly a matter of concern, that that might actually take a lot of time. Uh, there was a lot of shock before, early on in the pandemic, for example, when a very large KTV in being that's usually active around 24 hours per day. Uh, there's always people there uh, gathered there. They collapsed very quickly. And so I think there will still be this wave of effects on businesses, despite being starting to relax now. But of course, Ross, if you go to a KTV, you have to wear a face mask. Uh, I, I would encourage people not, unlike Bride apparently, not to give in to the fear. I, I, we have a small number of daily cases uh, here in Taiwan, thankfully. Though the border still relatively sealed. We still have a uh, fairly strict inbound arrival quarantine requirement. And more and more people uh, have already received vaccines. So uh, I, I think it's, it is safe to go out. I will go out. Uh, I'm not, I, I, I think some of these restrictions that uh, we've had to deal with in restaurants or other venues over the past few months have been an overreaction. Some were, some were good and some were an overreaction. I mean, the, the, the idea that uh, I have to have a plastic partition between me and my girlfriend when sitting in a, in a, a coffee place is, is really just not scientifically justified. 
uh, the KTVs, well, given the the, the wildness, uh, to, to put it blandly, uh, of the parties that sometimes go on in these rooms, I, I suppose those are some cleaning restrictions I could actually agree with, like the 30-minute waiting period. Uh, maybe that's something that, that uh, KTVs can implement going forward, uh, regardless of uh, COVID-19. Yeah, as, for, as for the hospital, uh, sure, there should be some kind of uh, discipline for, for, for both the, the hospital itself as well as for the staff involved. I, I find the one-week suspension a bit peculiar. I'm not sure what that really achieves other than some, some additional uh, public humiliation for the hospital, but uh, obviously uh, suspending their uh, privilege to needles in people's arms is, is not going to have an effect on the logistics. Uh, there are other other venues that will pick up the uh, the, the slack there for for uh, inoculating people. And Brian, do you see people wanting to return to this hospital to get their vaccinations, or do you think most people will be saying, "No, maybe I'll go somewhere else"? No, I think it will affect the prestige of the hospital for sure because of the fact that this uh, has occurred. And so I think this has also occurred in uh, other places in which there have been mistakes, for example, with. Uh, the wrong vaccine being distributed, or so forth. Um, I think particularly because so different brands now that are out there and they have to be handled differently, this, this leads to some confusion. Um, so it's not surprising that this kind of event would happen with, uh, with uh, at some hospitals sooner or later. Uh, but I think particularly in Taiwan, uh, this becomes this magnified in the media, and so I think that that will affect the siege. Um, at the same time, then, one does note how the clinics that uh, were involved in the vaccination order scandals at the early stages of this, this outbreak uh, still operate, and they still enjoy a prestige society. And so at the same time, I do think that if the hospital has enough prestige, this scandal will eventually blow over. But I think for now, yeah, people might be a little concerned there. And what I think Brian just made it a, a, per, a point that's, that's worth uh, further discussion, which is, quote-unquote, different brands. And that goes to this issue of the labeling that Gavin mentioned uh, earlier. You know, think about all the time. Uh, that's been wasted because of the government's procurement policy. I mean, we have to be frank here. I see people on, on, on Twitter, like, like they want to high-five the Taiwan government, or the Taiwan government wants to high-five itself because these additional vaccines have arrived. But again, let's be frank. The government was not eager to acquire uh, these foreign-made vaccines. They didn't move as quickly as other countries did to uh, write that check to the manufacturers. When uh, these NGOs initially wanted to serve as, as uh, one could say, a middleman to purchase vaccines, the government said no, and then they, they uh, created all sorts of elaborate and difficult to comply with procedures. And the government only relented uh, in May and June when there, there was the unfortunate outbreak over those, those four or five weeks, and then there was a U-turn to allow the NGOs. Uh, and then we wasted more time on the labeling, so we have to have the, the only in Taiwan brand labeling because, you know, it would be such a tragedy if there were some simplified characters on the label. Oh, come on. Right? And this all ultimately, this all goes back to one thing, which was uh, the government's desire or hope that the locally made vaccine would come to market sooner. Brian, um, I mean, yeah, I, I would disagree with that because the fact is it's standard practice that vaccine manufacturers only sell directly to governments. Uh, that's just how it is everywhere in the world. And so when you do have these non-government organizations or even local governments saying that, well, we can buy vaccines. This is actually just, you know, it's not what takes place. So these vaccine purchases could only ever take place with the national government signing offices, 
Uh, I'm sorry, Brian. Brian, that, that, that does not take place everywhere in the world. Not every no, country has a nationalized health care system. For example, stated that it would not be selling to uh, not if it was not the government. Uh, vaccine deals are just blatantly very untransparent. Uh, you can negotiate directly with the government. Uh, you don't have to reveal your your timeline, uh, the amount of vaccines you're, you're shipping sometimes, uh, just the price. Uh, and so this is very much just bound up with the global pharmaceutical industry and its power. And so in this case, it could only take place because the national government signed on. The government would not, you know, if it doesn't sign on, this would not be able to take place anyway, because the fact is it's the government to be distributing vaccines. It has to approve EUA for the use of vaccines. And so the government allowing these groups to sign on is in the face of trying to appear bipartisan. So, Brian, I mean, do you really think it matters that the labels had simplified characters on or not? I mean, if, if they contain the proper vaccine, does it really matter? So it became a political issue early on, I think. Uh, it's written in the contract that the uh, non-government groups that purchase the vaccine are allowed to, you know, they, that it should be in traditional characters. Um, but then there was controversy because of the fact that when they arrived, there's a, a banner in Simplify Chinese displayed. And so uh, the government has taken the stance that it was going to allow for these simplified character uh, vaccines because it was to speed up the process. That didn't really matter what's on the uh, labels, whereas the KMT will then make the accusation that the government is dragging its feet, uh, that it delayed things unnecessarily. Whereas then the government's response was that, well, this label uh, application to the vaccine occurs at the last stage of the process. Uh, and so this does not actually take very much time. And so I think basically the truth of the matter has been lost in pan-blue versus pan-green politicking. And so we don't really know, I think, at this point, how much is actually affected the politics. Both sides will use this attack each other as just simply uh, for the sake of scoring political points. So it, it's really hard to say at this point, I think. And Ross? Well, I don't think this has anything to do with the Guomindang, simply because they have no control over this. Uh, uh, any decision about when to write a check to the global manufacturers or, or what, what kind of labeling to use or, or uh, specific Taiwan requests for what should be on the label and how quickly that could be uh, addressed, that's entirely between the government and, and, and the manufacturers. And uh, you know, the government is, is bureaucratic, and it had its own political concerns. This, this com- the opposition in Taiwan had no role in this. And moving on now, Premier Su Jung Chung managed to deliver his first policy address of the new legislative session on Tuesday, albeit a rather much abridged version that lasted less than two minutes due to the hullabaloo in the main chamber. Su arrived at the legislature shortly before the hearing was slated to begin, accompanied by other cabinet officials, only to discover that several KMT lawmakers, well, they were already occupying the seats that had been reserved for them. The KMT then began loudly demanding that Su apologise for the government's coronavirus policy and attempted to stop him for reporting to lawmakers. DPP lawmakers, though, fired back and moved in to surround the Speaker's seat and nearby areas. And, well, pushing and shoving ensued once again in the legislative chamber here. But then shouting ensued after the pushing and shoving finished. And Sue then basically, well, he attempted to give his address. And he did, a very abridged version, like I said. And he also tried to move on to the question and answer session. But that was scrapped, uh, basically, because Deputy Legislative Speaker Tsai Chi Chung basically said, 
well, we can't continue because we've had a complaint about the noisy KMT lawmakers. Now, the KMT's beef with Sue and the government stems from its argument that the government's policy changes in mid-April that allowed cabin crew members of local airlines to only quarantine for three days after flying back to Taiwan was responsible for the domestic coronavirus outbreak. Now, the opposition is seeking an apology from the Premier for that, and Health Minister Chen Shih-jong appeared to confirm the link in May, but that's didn't that made news at the time and then was forgotten about. But he said the government is continuing to look into the matter because it's been unable to identify a chain of transmission. And as we're recording this show, basically, well, Premier Su Jin Chung is once again trying to enter the legislative building and take questions from lawmakers, and the KMT is still demanding such an apology. So, Ross, of course, demanding an apology from the premiers by either party's lawmakers is nothing new. But, I mean, do you think maybe this one deserves some answers, especially considering there are different opinions about whether the cabin crew members were responsible for the domestic coronavirus outbreak in the first place? Well, there, there's two issues here. I mean, the first is, is, is more immediate because it's, it's the events of this past week. And, and that's the, the conduct of, of the Guomindang legislators. Uh, they, they have a, a political concern, a valid one, but, but uh, you know, they're, they're using this old style of, of trying to occupy uh, this, the, the rostra and these other kinds of edicts. Uh, it, it's not going to help them return to electoral uh, you know, power. Uh, it's not going to help them do well in the, in the 2022 local election or, or the 2024 national election, whether in the legislative UN, where they need to win a lot of seats to get a majority, or in the presidential election. Uh, you know, it's, it's too bad that new chairman uh, Eric Jew has not been able, uh, granted it's only been a few days, uh, to, to uh, have a, a real heart-to-heart talk with, with, with the legislative caucus and, and, and explain that if you want to uh, persuade the public in Taiwan that this is a party that should be returned to power, then we have to conduct ourselves accordingly. But they're, again, they're using those old kind of traditional uh, tactics. And in the past, the DPP has used them uh, as well. Uh, but I, I, I don't think it's the best way to, to go about uh, making the, the, the case that they want to make to, to the public. Uh, the other issue is the way that the government has responded to uh, you know, the events in, in April and May. And, and frankly, uh, their responses have been less than thorough. It, it, it's more like, uh, uh, yeah, there, there, there were some people who came into Taiwan. They may have had COVID, and the quarantine wasn't as strict as it could have been. And uh, that's that. You know, trust us, we fixed it. Uh, I, again, I, I think the uh, investigation deserves more transparency uh, than the government has been willing to give it. But uh, you know, with a, a legislature that, that is very pliant, uh, because the DPP enjoys a comfortable majority, uh, we're not going to see the kind of uh, questions. Uh, I'll just give an example. I mean, what we've seen in, in recent days and weeks in the United States Congress, where, where both Republicans and Democrats have been uh, very, very angry, very thorough in their questioning of Biden administration officials about what happened in Afghanistan. Uh, but we don't see uh, the DPP uh, questioning the, the, the legislators. We don't see them questioning the government over the way it's uh, announced its investigation results of what happened in April and May. Yeah, so it means to me that the uh, great political tradition in Taiwan of fighting in the legislature continues during the pandemic. Um, I recall a while ago, for example, when asked uh, if chief television anchors could take off their masks on camera, Chen Shijong, the Minister of Health, said that, well, they should keep them on because it's just an example for the public. Then in the legislature, in the middle of the pandemic, you have this uh, fighting and this pushing and pulling. So it sets a great example for the public in terms of uh, COVID convention measures. So I guess it is okay then to go out and fight with your uh, 
enemies or whatever on the streets and, and be in close contact with this time. At least that's what the example model there is. Um, so it's been the latest of a lot of continual disruptions of the uh, reports by Su Chong, particularly regarding the 3 plus 11 uh, quarantine schedule. So this is expected to continue. I think what's interesting is that the KMT is perhaps playing to their base uh, with this. Uh, the KMT is like to release, for example, uh, promotional images or, or advertising featuring them in gym clothing, in uh, boxing gloves, training to fight in the legislature, apparently. And a lot is really done for theatrics, I mean, uh, in terms of just what occurs on and off camera. As soon as people are off camera, sometimes they're not really fighting anymore. They're just kind of actually, sometimes they're actually uh, just kind of a little more friendly to each other even. And so this, this, is, this theatrical uh, stunt continue, and it just doesn't actually advance discussion of these issues. Because, yeah, I also agree that there has not been enough transparency on this issue in terms of uh, what actually happened. And the government currently takes the stance that the Novotel uh, cluster, for example, is not connected to the current outbreak. And it'd be nice to have some answers on that, but it doesn't look like we're actually going to get those answers or any kind of cross-examination, but instead the kind of political theatrics within the legislature. But I guess it's not new in Chinese politics. And of course, Brian Ross made a point about the newly appointed, newly elected KMT chairman, Eric Jew, maybe not being able to rein in his lawmakers. So I actually think that's definitely the case, um, because of the fact that Johnny Chang could not actually uh, control the KMT Legislative Caucus in some cases. I mean, the, the occupation, the brief abortive occupation of the legislature that the KMT Legislative Caucus uh, mounted, including throwing pig awful at uh, Susan Chung, that did not seem to be something that he originally wanted too much. He was trying to restrain the party to clean up its image, to seem more willing to engage in dialogue. But then the KMT Legislative Caucus took this hard line. And so I think Eric Chu, who in the past was perceived as more moderate, similar to Johnny Chang, actually, it was actually a bit of a struggle for him to distinguish himself during the election. Uh, he'll face the exact same issue, and I think this is maybe an early precedent of that. Uh, you know, where do we go from here on this issue? Because uh, uh, the public deserves to know um, what happened in April and May. Uh, uh, it could happen again, even though we still have strict quarantine requirements, as I mentioned earlier, uh, and the ability for... Any kind of independent investigation is, is to occur is, is very, very limited because of the controls on, on you know, some of the medical data, for example. Uh, I, I, I think it's a lost opportunity, uh, similar to some other lost opportunities. You know, Taiwan likes to pat itself on the back, uh, perhaps deservedly so because of the low number of cases that, that have occurred throughout this, uh, you know, the last 18, 19 months. Uh, but there have been some missed opportunities, such as mass testing, which might have shown that uh, you know, there's more COVID uh, in the community than, than you know, the confirmed cases actually indicate. And that would have just been good medical uh, data to have. Taiwan could have contributed that uh, to the world. You know, similarly, uh, a transparent investigation about this would have uh, just, just added to our knowledge base, not just here in Taiwan, but again, something that Taiwan uh, could have shared about how an outbreak occurred despite uh, certain quarantine requirements or certain self-reporting requirements. Um, you know, look, we know these the pilots. Uh, we're, we're operating under an alternative system versus the rest of us. Uh, again, it, it would have been useful data, but it, it seems that you know, the government is just in, in fear of, of uh, a, a, a legislative opposition, a minority uh, who, who aren't even popular with the public scoring some political points. I think the government really shouldn't be in fear of that and should just be more transparent. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. And 
welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this week has been busy touting the number of Taiwan's diplomatic allies that spoke out in the island's support at the general debate at this year's United Nations General Assembly. 13 of Taiwan's 15 diplomatic allies voiced their support and the Foreign Ministry was busy posting all of those complimentary words on its Twitter account and stressing that it was the highest number since 2017 when 15 of Taiwan's then total 20, 20 diplomatic allies spoke up for the island at the general debate. Now, the only allies that didn't speak up for Taiwan were Honduras and the Vatican. And the Foreign Ministry explained that away by saying that Honduras annually sends a letter to the UN Secretary General to support Taiwan's participation in the UN system, while the Vatican is not a UN member, but only an observer, and rarely speaks out on political issues during UN-related meetings. So, Brian, 13 of 15, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs says that's a good thing. Yeah, I think it's, uh, uh, it's expected from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They will tout this as a success, uh, just in terms of maintaining diplomatic relations. And so it's a question how useful this is actually for Taiwan when it is usually the uh, global powers in the world, particularly the U.S., that are more influential on uh, whether Taiwan would, would be able to enter international bodies such as the uh, U.N., or now we have discussion of, for example, the CPTPP and, and international bodies such as that. Um, but I think uh, particularly in domestic political discourse, is a great stake placed on maintaining uh, diplomatic relations with allies uh, so that they can speak up with Taiwan. Also, just the fact that just it's viewed as a loss when allies break off relations with Taiwan in favor of, uh, with ROC in favor of, of the PRC. And so, for example, Tsai has vowed not to lose more allies, and she has seen a loss of allies during her, her uh, two terms in office so far. Uh, and it might continue to happen. Um, so I think multiple tout this as well. You know, we've, we've maintained relations, so the fact of speaking up with that uh, for us is, is a good thing. Uh, but at the same time, it, it raises the, the greater question, is it worth spending so much expense with countries that are much smaller, uh, often professional human rights records themselves, in which Taiwan is not really aligned with uh, countries that necessarily reflect democratic values? Um, I think that's a, a bigger question to ask. And Ross, of course, you're the ever pessimist when it comes to the UN and the WHA in Taiwan and people speaking up in the island support. Oh, the, these institutions have their problems. You, know, you could dislike uh, Donald Trump and his team, but uh, their, their criticisms uh, that they were willing to make more directly, uh, you know, that reflects a longstanding view, uh, at least among conservatives and Republicans in the United States, about uh, these organizations and China's influence in these organizations. And yet we have Taiwan constantly knocking on the door saying, let me in, when uh, there are alternative ways to go about this, Uh, again, especially given uh, how discredited these organizations have become. Uh, I I think it's appropriate to say thank you uh, if a president or a prime minister or the uh, other uh, speaker representing uh, these countries uh, did publicly uh, support Taiwan's uh, participation in UN-related organizations. Uh, but, but the overreaction, I, I think it's a, it's a bit silly. You know, some of these uh, Facebook posts with, with, with uh, nice images of all the flags of these countries and saying, like, 13 out of 15, the, great, the highest number since 2017. I, I think that's, that's really silly. Uh, uh, you know, it just whips up people's emotions to be really excited about uh, some of these countries. But, uh, again, the result is the same. And do you think the fact that this this year's general debate was basically most of it was actually virtual rather than in person? Well, I, I mean, it might detract from some of the media attention that that it, it gets globally. But we we also have to keep in mind that absent or other than. 
say the United States president's speech and uh, you know if there's a country that's particularly the the subject of a lot of international attention or, or a lot of international uh, criticism you know say like a you know it's a period when North Korea is launching missiles like now you know people pay attention to what the North Korean speaker says in case he'll hint uh, about possible uh, rapprochement or, or going in the other direction uh, you know, more missile tests uh, but, but but we have to be frank. Nobody is paying attention to, to the speeches by uh, most countries, including large countries, and including the, the 13 uh, countries that have diplomatic relations whose, whose speaker uh, supported Taiwan's participation. So, uh, again, it goes back to the point I made earlier. You know, people are getting excited over this. Uh, I, I think it's unnecessary. And, of course, Brian broached the issue of losing more diplomatic allies. Well, that's up to China. Right, that that the, you know, what China says to Honduras or Nicaragua or some of these others, the time has come. Uh, it's highly likely that they'll switch. I mean, in the case of Honduras, one of the one presidential candidate in the upcoming election has made it abundantly clear uh, if they win the election that they will switch. Uh, Nicaragua, which is facing an enormous amount of criticism from uh, the United States government and members of Congress right now over uh, the way over its recent conduct and, and its conduct heading into an election. Uh, you know, it's led by a leftist. Uh, his natural partner is China, not Taiwan, yet Taiwan still praises the relationship. Uh, so, but, but again, that, that's very much up to China. When, when China decides it's time to embarrass uh, the government here in Taiwan, and they'll, they'll persuade uh, another country to switch. And one of the reasons, I think, why this has not occurred uh, and now, it's been two years since Solomon Islands and Kiribati switched, is uh, because of the pandemic, uh, you're deprived of the opportunity for a president or a prime minister to come to Beijing and you know, have a big signing ceremony, which China likes to do as part of uh, this exercise. So uh, once travel's possible, we're probably going to see a switch. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, so that's actually a bit of a surprise to me that I claim that she would not lose more diplomatic allies, because I think that when China does want it to occur, if they apply enough force or offer enough incentives, it could happen. And so when that does happen, then it will be held up in terms of uh, Thai's past statements and like, well, you said this and look at what happened. Um, so I think it is possible. I do think the pandemic has, has dragged things on in this respect. I think also a lot of countries are maybe waiting to see how things pan out in terms of U.S.-China relations or maybe have a clearer picture of uh, the overall global alignment of powers if are deciding whether to uh, switch recognition or not. Um, but I think it is, it is the case that this is still the general tendency that uh, allies will switch over to the PRC, that there's more incentive to do so just given China's global power in the world or the size of its market. And that's really hard to avoid because these are not things that will change. I mean, at the end of the day, China will always be larger, have a larger economy, have more global influence than Taiwan does. And of course, Brian, this reports that next week the members of the French Senate's Taiwan Friendship Group will visit Taiwan on a trip that's been what was overshadowed so far by the reaction of the Chinese ambassador in Paris. That's right. And so it does uh, show increasing support from Europe in that sense. Uh, the question is what that leads to that's more substantial. Um, it's quite interesting, too, particularly after the AUKUS fallout, uh, the fact that Australia broke a submarine deal with France. Um, that this is occurring, because I think, you know, Taiwan factors very much into these, these regional calculations regarding uh, military power. Uh, and so the relation with France now, which is, is, is uh, feeling kind of offended by this, is quite interesting to manage, um, particularly because Taiwan will try to build relations with AUKUS. That is just necessary for regional security. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting, too, because a lot of the visits have come from Eastern European countries so to date, and uh, France is obviously a Western European country. So I guess it'll be, you know, that pans out. A big delegation of uh, legislators coming to Taiwan from from uh, 
countries that are friendly to Taiwan. Not new, whether it's the United States, UK, or other countries. Uh, this is actually something that, that occurs uh, pre-pandemic. Uh, occurs regularly. Uh, they get a nice show. They, they, they get the five-star treatment. In fact, they'll even get uh, a waiver from the quarantine requirements that apply to the rest of us. Uh, imagine that. Uh, and there'll be a lot of uh, statements and, and photo opportunities about uh, Taiwan-France relations. Uh, we should also uh, mention that uh, earlier this week when the, the EU's uh, foreign minister and the Chinese foreign minister spoke that the EU uh, reiterated that uh, you know, it has a one-China policy, uh, or in other words, it's not going to establish diplomatic relations with Taiwan. It's going to restrict the relations to trade and cultural uh, relations. So uh, it, it's nice to see legislators visit. We should keep in mind they're from the upper house, so they, they're actually within, you know, within the French constitutional framework. The upper house has limited power, very similar to when the Czech senators came here. People got all excited and you know, completely ignored the fact that uh, they actually don't have much legislative authority. So France Senate is, is, is broadly similar. Uh, so nice, but uh, to, to get overly excited, it's kind of like some of the other things we're talking about. I think it's unnecessary. And moving away from politics and diplomatic issues and to Labour issues, because Labour Minister Xuming Chun, Economics Minister Wang Meihua and National Development Council Minister Gong Mingxin this week all said that the minimum wage will be increased next year. Now, the separate statements came a week before the Minimum Wage Review Committee is set to meet for its annual chinwag to decide on the matter next Friday. Now, the Labour Minister told lawmakers during a meeting of the Legislative Social Welfare and Environmental Hygiene Committee that the members of the committee, that being the Minimum Wage Review Committee, have discussed the issue and reached a level of consensus on raising the minimum wage. The Economics Minister, meanwhile, told reporters that a consensus has been reached by the heads of government departments on the minimum wage issue and it will be increased next year, while the National Development Council Minister said in an online interview that the government is looking to raise the minimum wage by a larger extent this year because estimates are showing that Taiwan's economy could grow by at least 6%. Now, the current minimum wage, monthly wage, stands at 24,000 NT while the minimum hourly wage stands at 160 NT. Now, the government raised the minimum wage by 0.84% last year, and that was the lowest increase in five years, saying that the rise was minimal because of the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, Labour groups have been seeking an increase of roughly, well, somewhere between 3 and 6%. However, business representatives are raising concerns about that, with the General Chamber of Commerce arguing that it opposes any increase. And the Chamber is stressing that if the government does hike the minimum wage, it should then provide subsidies for companies affected by the coronavirus pandemic until their businesses can resume normal operations. So, Brian, we had a minimal hike in the minimum wage last year, and now they're looking at they're looking at basically the government has said this, looking around possibly a six percent hike, but no one's actually confirmed that. Yeah, and so I think the uh, reaction to this breakdown in the usual pattern is in that organized labor groups will point to this as not enough, while corporate groups will say that well, this is too much. I think that's particularly the pattern in the last two years now uh, during COVID. Once COVID has happened, that corporate groups will point to the, that this, uh, the business groups that this is not the time for this because businesses are affected by COVID globally. Uh, on the other hand, one can point to uh, Taiwan's economy, uh, the fact that things are okay, um, imports, exports are at a high, um, and the fact that in looking at the past few decades, uh, the increase in salary has not kept pace with the increase in profits to show that there is actually a need for uh, an increase in minimum wages at the very least and more labor protections all around. Uh, however, I think it, it, at the same time, this is not likely to please either side, no matter what happens. And I think this is generally the pattern with the uh, side administration when it comes to labor law. It started off in its uh, taking office by changing 
labor law uh, in a matter that was criticized by labor groups, and then it flip-flopped uh, so that, okay, well, we're not going to do this now, and then, then business groups were unhappy. And so then after that process of flip-flopping, both sides were unhappy, and I think this is also going to be the case with this issue. And what about the subsidies that the businesses are calling for? Yeah, so I think uh, that's often criticized as a way to avoid raising the uh, minimum wage, that you just say, well, we offer these subsidies now, so we don't actually need a increase in minimum wage. And I think this is uh, just criticized by labor groups across the board from industry to industry. For example, this was an issue with uh, postal workers recently, that there was a criticism of the company for, the, for saying that, well, we offer these subsidies for meals, and so we don't have to increase wages that much. Um, I think this is viewed as an excuse. Uh, this is not a new exercise, right? Uh, labor says it's it's not enough increase. Corporates say it's the end of the world. I mean, we know generally mo- most studies, uh, different economies around the world show that modest increases in the minimum wage, uh, they're, they're not going to cause the uh, corporate profits to, to completely collapse. It's not going to destroy the economy. Uh, but, but it's just the reflexive response from from the corporate world. In fact, lots of studies show uh, you know, this might turn out to be a good thing for everyone. Uh, it, it would be good if the corporate world would just play along. Uh, they're, they're obviously going to announce an increase. It, it's not going to make labor groups happy, and uh, the corporate world will, will you know, complain a little bit, but they actually know that whatever tidy increases it out, it's not going to uh, erode their profits. But we should also keep in mind that this does affect some people in Taiwan, but but actually it doesn't affect a lot of people who, who don't make minimum wage, but whose wages have been stagnant. And, and you know, this is the, the issue that gets discussed uh, in the media and other venues a lot, which is you know, well, the, the average office worker or the average blue-collar worker is not making minimum wage, uh, but, but those wages have been stagnant um, and, and uh, costs are increasing, whether it's food or real estate. Uh, and those are the people who are who are getting squeezed, and, and they won't be helped by this change. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so I think one of the issues, too, particularly, is that when you do change the law, there are quite a lot of companies that do not abide by this. There are quite a lot of companies that have internal regulations, for example, on overtime or the amount of hours you're allowed to report that is not reflected in, in the law. And this is all illegal, but unfortunately, there's the internal pressure in the company that, well, if you report this, then you'll be ostracized, you'll be pressured by management, uh, etc. There will be retaliation in some form. And so this actually proves very hard to regulate. I think it actually goes back to the uh, issue that's been criticized a long time by labor groups is that uh, labor inspections from the Ministry of Labor are rather defanged. They don't actually have a lot of effect. Uh, it's very easy to kind of conceal these sort of practices or just lie about them. Or sometimes just there's a, a very sloppy inspection that you just don't actually carry out with some thoroughness. That you have to witness the infraction in order to penalize it. But then rarely that ever happens when there's labor inspections. And, Ross, what about the argument that, well, the, the economy is doing well, ergo we should hike the minimum wage? You have to be careful when you say the economy is doing well. Uh, and, again, this is one of those long-term issues with Taiwan that, that uh, policymakers struggle to survive. Sure, the tech industry is doing very, very well. Uh, they were doing well. Uh, before the pandemic, they're doing amazing because of the – or it's, uh, it's one reason – uh, among others, uh, is the pandemic. Uh, but but you know, who benefits from that? Sure, sure. if you own shares, you're, you're wealthy enough to be able to afford to buy stock, and that's a lot of people. Uh, executives at these companies uh, obviously will do well, uh, too. Uh, but the factory workers at these companies, a lot of them are farm labor, so you know, the, the, the financial success of the tech companies is, is irrelevant to the people on the production line. And then as you move into other parts of the economy, uh, the traditional industry, manufacturing economy, 
service workers uh, who are at the lower end of the wage scale or, or even making minimum wage, uh, they're not benefiting from these very, very pretty numbers we see, uh, a, a very high uh, you know, forecast for this year's or next year's growth rate. Um, that, that, again, that, that's uh, an issue that's been around a long time, and um, you know, it's, it, it's not going to be solved by, by stressing or emphasizing that uh, Taiwan's going to have a high GDP growth rate this year. And before we go this week, but staying with business news, the Taiwan Institute of Economic Research warned that Taiwanese companies with production lines in China would likely be facing power rationing as Beijing taking steps to reduce energy usage and carbon emissions. Now, the government, or the institute rather, is saying that Taiwanese manufacturers should take the issue seriously and think about how to relocate their production resources from China in the long term. So, of course, Ross, we've had this argument before, the government calling on local or Taiwan-based companies to return to Taiwan. Taiwan. Do you see the government picking up this flag and again telling these companies that could face power rationing in China, hey, you should return to Taiwan? Well, there's been a lot of that over the last couple of years as, as the Trump administration imposed tariffs or uh, other restrictions on, on doing business with Chinese companies, making it uh, uh, even more expensive or, or uh, affecting the ability to export from China to the United States. Uh, so the government surprise, surprise, offered subsidies uh, for, for companies to move some manufacturing back to Taiwan. And there was some success with that. Uh, look, if, if you give companies uh, subsidies or, or you give them uh, intra, very low interest rate loans, uh, you know, it's like giving, almost like giving them free money uh, to, to do with what, uh, what they want, uh, whether it's to build new facilities or invest in other, other things. Uh, but but uh, is this going to cause a lot of companies to relocate uh, from China to Taiwan? I'm going to say probably not. This could just be a, a short-term thing. Uh, I would encourage listeners to, to read a lot of information about what's going on in China right now because it, it's not necessarily a supply issue. The supply, you know, some say that people say the supply actually exists. Uh, there's some political uh, reasons why there's some rationing in the supply, uh, which has to do with a lot of uh, other issues, whether it's trying to keep the air clean prior to the Olympics uh, or some other things. Uh, so uh, I, I'm going to say, no, this is not going to cause by itself a, a huge uh, stampede of Taiwan companies to relocate uh, from China to Taiwan. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think the Pan Green camp or Pan Green Media is particularly interested whenever there's talk of Taiwanese firms potentially getting out of China. Uh, and so this kind of story becomes amplified that, well, maybe this sets a precedent or that this will happen in the future. Um, at the same time, I do think there's a lot of concern recently about the moves that China is making uh, in terms of restructuring uh, aspects of the economy, for example, uh, just in terms of trying to meet environmental goals or being willing to kind of really shake things up to, to meet uh, longer-term development goals that might not actually uh, be very pretty in the short term in terms of their effects, but may need to be done. And so I think, critically, that, that's part of the concern. Uh, at the same time, it's also a little funny to me looking at the story because there's always concern about, let's say, Taiwanese firms relocating somewhere else because of the frequent power outages in Taiwan. And so this is kind of uh, a reflection of that, uh, in some sense, this story. Uh, but I think at the same time, if Taiwanese firms do get out of China, it depends more on these larger-term structural considerations, for example, cost of labor, uh, how expensive it is to operate in China, other, other issues, uh, as to whether they will be going elsewhere, because it's not so easy to, to go elsewhere. And to say for China, there are some advantages, for example, that there is no language barrier, for example. That's, that's quite large sometimes for, for some companies. And so I think these, these kind of more long-term things will, will factor into whether firms decide to get out or not, rather than kind of short-term policy, which I think, you know, people are, are still waiting to see how that pans out eventually. And that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Ross Feingold. 
Have a great weekend. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.